are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Hello, I'm uh, Jackie Miller, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Seattle, and I am delighted to welcome you to today's uh, book launch for Scott Radnitz's latest book, Revealing Schemes, The Politics of Conspiracy in Russia and the Post-Soviet Region. Um, before getting started, I'm just going to run through quickly what you can expect today. In a few minutes, Scott will talk to us about his book, which is an incredibly timely look at how conspiracy theories have become really powerful tools of politicians. And although his book focuses primarily on post-Soviet states, the conclusions he draws are of relevance uh, in consolidated democracies like the United States, where conspiracy theories are unfortunately no longer relegated to the margins. And indeed, the book concludes with a chapter that includes a look at conspiracism in the United States. After Scott speaks for 10 or 15 minutes or so, which is kind of a, a hard task to summarize a book and, and the meticulous research in that amount of time, I'm going to ask him a couple of questions to draw out some more points um, from the, the research he's done creating this database of conspiracy claims in post-Soviet space and uncovering patterns of conspiracism in post-Soviet politics. And then after Scott and I have a short chat, I'll briefly introduce Paul Stronsky from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he'll spend 10 or 15 minutes giving his reaction to the arguments and conclusions that, that Scott has put forward. So with that, I'll briefly introduce Scott. We'll get this conversation started. Uh, Scott Radnitz is the Herbert J. Ellison Associate Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies at the University of Washington's Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies. That's a very long title for a business card. He's an expert on uh, post-Soviet region, and he's been very busy with his focus on protests, authoritarianism, informal networks, and identity. And I've noticed that we're discussing his latest book today, but he is already working on his next book, Exploring Fifth Columns, uh, which also tend to pop up in conspiracy theories. So anyone who's worked on Russia and the post-Soviet states has heard a lot of conspiracy theories. And if you've been following the news from Kazakhstan, from Ukraine, the protests in Belarus, you're seeing them too. For example, according to the Kazakh uh, president, there are some 20,000 well-organized and trained non-Kazakh speaking terrorists organized by the special center um, who are responsible for the violence in Almaty. Um, that's a lot of terrorists. Um, so it's a very timely, very relevant and very interesting contribution to our understanding of how and why conspiracy theories are politicized and how they affect civic and political engagement. And what Scott has written about is not abstract, and it's not limited to conspiracy-rich post-Soviet space. Conspiracy theories are becoming more prevalent in the United States and other democracies as they become, as we become more polarized. We have created fertile ground for that, that politicization of conspiracy theories. So with that, I'm going to ask Scott to, uh, in you know, 10, 15 minutes, lay out what you've learned and the conclusions you've drawn from this exhaustive study of conspiracy theories in post-Soviet space. Thank you very much, Jackie. Uh, and thanks also uh, to Paul uh, for being a discussant and for everybody else who uh, showed up today. Just last week, uh, in response to massive protests uh, in several cities in Kazakhstan, President Takayev 
said, the analysis of the situation showed that Kazakhstan is facing an armed act of aggression, well-prepared and coordinated, coordinated by perpetrators and terrorist groups trained outside the country. And Jackie and I did not coordinate in advance in uh, speaking about Kazakhstan. Last month, uh, Russia's Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, um, talking about Ukraine, said they, in this case meaning US mercenaries, equip firing positions in residential buildings and at socially significant facilities, prepare Ukrainian special operations forces and radical armed groups for active hostilities. They commit provocations, uh, reserves of an unidentified chemical, chemical component were delivered to, and then he names two cities in Donbass in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, around the same time, at the end of December, at uh, Putin's annual press conference, uh, he said, in 1991, we divided ourselves into 12, I think, parts, right? But the impression is that this is not enough for our partners. Partners uh, is a euphemism, I think, for the West, NATO, and especially the US. Russia is too big, in their opinion, today, because the European countries themselves have turned into small states, not great empires, but into small states, 60 to 80 million people. But even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, where we only have 146 million left, this is too much. It seems to me that only this can explain such constant pressure. When we think about conspiracy theories, uh, it's usually in the context uh, of why some people believe them when we think they otherwise shouldn't. Uh, social scientists who study conspiracy theories also focus mostly on the question of belief and have usually uh, focused on psychological explanations. What is it about certain people that leads them to believe these ideas which, which we think uh, are, are false and, and misguided? But as we see from these examples, conspiracy theories are also a form of political rhetoric. So in my book, I try to move the conversation from conspiracy theories as a form of belief to conspiracy theories or claims as a means of propaganda. So I, wanna, I wanted to ask the question of how we can think about what purposes conspiracy claims might serve for public officials and what factors give rise to that. The conventional wisdom when it comes to leaders though is that it's mostly about personality, uh, historically, uh, when, when leaders have been especially conspiratorial, um, we've called them paranoid or unhinged. Uh, conspiracy theories are also associated with repression. And that's because of, uh, of certain um, classic historical figures, Stalin and, and Hitler come to mind, right? Who, for whom conspiracy theory was an important part of, of maintaining a repressive regime and, and carrying out uh, violence against populations. But this is limiting because as we clearly know by now, uh, conspiracy theories are not only voiced by the unhinged, but they can also be used strategically with an eye for political advantage. Uh, within social science, there's been a general tendency in the last decade or so to depathologize conspiracy theories, to not associate them with paranoia, uh, to understand that they're a pretty widespread form of belief um, that normal people and educated people might also subscribe to. Uh, so along the same lines, I also wanted to study conspiracy theories as an ordinary tool in the rhetorical toolkit in politics, alongside other kinds of unsavory uh, and not necessarily truthful speech. So in the book, I, I seek out patterns to try to understand what are some of the systematic causes of conspiracism. Let's look at how it emerges from the dynamics of politics uh, and to look at 
what features of politics makes conspiracism more likely. I also wanted to take the narrative outside of a single country. Um, it's perhaps an inevitable fact that the bulk of research on this topic has been conducted in the West, uh, predominantly in the US and UK. And uh, that has limited our ability to understand the role that conspiracy theories play both in societies and politics in the world more broadly. Because even as conspiratorial as things may seem now in the US and Europe, uh, it's much more of a pervasive issue in many other countries, including the ones that I focus on in this book. So um, even when people look at a single country, whether that's Russia or say Turkey or uh, Pakistan or Venezuela, um, it's always easy to identify what look like the historical or social precursors of conspiracism in that country by highlighting, highlighting a series of traumatic events which leads to uh, traumatized and insecure populations. And this tends to lead to implicit arguments about political culture, that there's something about the population because of uh, the trials that it's suffered through that makes them prone to believe in conspiracy theories and makes it seem inevitable. But if you start out knowing that a place is conspiratorial, it's easy to look back and identify the factors that make it so. But there may be other countries with similar factors that don't end up as conspiratorial. So especially for social science, it makes sense to look at a set of countries together to try to distinguish which factors are really important and which ones aren't. And also, if you only look at the most interesting, uh, provocative conspiratorial cases or conspiracy theories, we might be missing some of the more prosaic and banal stories about the ordinary, the quotidian use of conspiracy theories. The post-Soviet region, it turns out, is a, a good place to do a study like this. Uh, and in the book, I focus on 12 countries, that is the 15 post-Soviet states minus the Baltic states. Russia is, of course, primary because Russia is big and important for intrinsic reasons. But I also want to decenter Russia by placing it alongside others with shared histories. In the book, I look at 20 years of conspiracy theories from 1995 to 2014. Uh, I use a broad language, a broad selection of Russian language newspapers, uh, some television, wire services, and also BBC monitoring, which is a service that uh, takes broadcasts in other languages and translate them into English. 20 years is too many days to cover, at least with my limited resources. So um, I selected particular events that are often associated with conspiracy theories. And I had research assistants uh, collect conspiracy theories uh, both the one week before and one week after that. And also I collected conspiracy theories on random days within those 20 years. I was fortunate to be able to rely on about a dozen research assistants um, who, who toiled for me, um, steeped themselves in uh, some of the worst or most interesting and most provocative uh, stories that have been told in the post-Soviet region over the last 20 years and ended up with a little over 1500 conspiracy claims um, in, in a database. So now to move to the book itself. Um, I elaborate on some of those uh, rationales about why, why I, I took on this project. And then uh, I describe a framework for understanding why regimes use conspiracy claims. So one factor that I focus on is political competition, which um, unlike pure autocracy is a system in which uh, challengers can compete for power. And usually in competitive systems, there's somewhat of an independent media. 
And this draws incumbents, that is leaders, into the fray. Uh, and I show um, through, through analysis of some countries that more competitive regimes actually tend to produce more conspiracy claims than more authoritarian regimes. And this kind of works um, contrary to the conventional wisdom that conspiracy theories are the handmaiden of dictatorship. Another factor is what I call destabilizing events. And these are unexpected and politically threatening events uh, like, like street violence or riots or, or terrorist attacks. Uh, and these events create pressures for the political leadership to provide an explanation for what's going on in order to demonstrate their control. And a third factor is geopolitical influences. And this is important because in the post-Soviet region, uh, ordinary people and their leaders uh, are not only looking at what's going on in their own countries, but within especially the Russian speaking media sphere, leaders are often looking at their neighbors and leaders outside of Russia are look, also looking at Russia and leaders in Russia are also looking to other places like uh, Ukraine and Kazakhstan. So sometimes ideas that begin in one country uh, migrate to another country and leaders often feel the need to comment on what's happening in other countries too if there is relevance for, for those events um, in their own country back home. So uh, I look at these factors together and explain what, uh, what purposes conspiracy theories serve for, pol for politicians in each instance. And I also look at the rhetorical arsenal of regimes as a whole. And I describe what I call conspiracy theory regimes or conspiracy or modes of conspiracism based on how often they appear and in what circumstances. Um, and the countries in the study divide somewhat neatly along the lines of competitive regimes uncompetitive regimes, and then Russia, which moves from one kind of regime to another in terms of, of what, for, what, what is the impetus for conspiracy claims. Um, so while conspiracy theories may be useful, or at least may appear useful to uh, political leaders, there's also a risk that they can backfire. Uh, one drawback of using conspiracy theories too much is that they can erode a leader's credibility even if people don't have a lot of access to um, outside information, if people find that uh, the government is constantly claiming that, um, that it's under attack and uh, the end is near and horrible things are happening, but those prognostications turn out not to be true, over time, people might start to, to doubt uh, subsequent claims by the political leadership. And regimes uh, might therefore endanger their credibility by, um, by overuse of conspiracy claims. Conspiracy theories can also be a signal of weakness. Uh, even if the intention is to signal strength by you know, demonstrating your uh, a regime's willingness to use a strong hand and, uh, and put down peaceful protesters. Uh, if regimes claim that they're constantly under threat and that uh, there's a lot of people who want to destroy it, people might start to wonder whether maybe um, a regime that has so many enemies is not uh, a regime that is going to last for very long. So incidentally, inadvertently, a regime might undermine its own authority by um, through the claim that that's if it's embattled or encircled, right? And, and eventually the, then the barbarians are at the gates. And finally, um, the overuse of conspiracy theories can lead to fatigue in which uh, conspiracy theories no longer gain people's attention, but fade into the background noise. Um, once you've you know heard that um, the, uh, protest groups are, are, you know, backed by the CIA, and that's why they're organizing in the streets. Um, you know, it, it doesn't shock when you hear it the second, third, or eighth time, 
and uh, it might start to lose its effect. And so it fades into the background noise. So, um, so these are some of the major arguments um, in the book that I explore. And uh, it's hard to do justice to, to everything that I did. Um, it was uh, you know, eight years of, of work on and off. Uh, so I'm gonna just give a very brief chapter overview and then I'm gonna uh, turn uh, this discussion over to uh, Jackie and Paul. So, uh, the, so chapter one is, is uh, the theoretical overview that I just gave. I, I lay out some of the parameters of, of what um, the book does and, and what the argument is. Chapter two is a stylized historical narrative of the region. I address arguments about political culture in the 20th century, especially as it pertains to Russia. Uh, and then I, I critique that approach. Uh, and then I focus on post-Soviet preoccupations that new leaders have over sovereignty and their attempts at obtaining full political control. Uh, and then in that chapter, I outline uh, 42, what I call critical events. These are the events that are sometimes associated with conspiracy theories that, that anchor um, the data collection effort. Chapter three is a qualitative overview of the uh, database of, of conspiracy theories. Um, I organize them in different ways. I look at who accuses whom uh, and I, I create a typology of conspiracy claims by whether uh, the claim itself refers to an event which is observable and whether it's coercive. And I, um, I think about the implications of those. Chapter four um, is a quantitative examination of some, some patterns that come from the database. I look at the effects of time on the use of conspiracy claims. Uh, I look at external influences, domestic factors like regime type, and also leaders. Uh, how the authority or how the importance of, of, of different positions uh, in the political system um, change over time in terms of who uses conspiracy claims. Uh, then chapters five and six are, are case studies um, that are more qualitative. So in chapter five, I, I look at just the Russian case. And the first part uses the data to address some arguments, to look at the changes from the Yeltsin era to the Putin era, to look at the effect of democratic backsliding over time. And then uh, to deconstruct who is voicing conspiracy claims on behalf of the Kremlin. That is, it's not always political officials, it's not always elected or appointed officials. Sometimes the Kremlin relies on proxies in the media or, um, or um, universities or think tanks. And sometimes the press uh, echoes conspiracy claims. And sometimes the press also um, attacks the Russian government. So I look at the different parts of um, the entire uh, media system and political system um, and try to decipher who makes claims when. And then I look at uh, four concrete events in the last 20 years or between this, this period, uh, 1995 and 2014 in Russia and look at um, how they generated conspiracy claims. Chapter six um, is case studies of Ukraine, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan and Belarus. I chose these countries because they have different kinds of regimes and also different geopolitical relationships with Russia. And then chapter seven um, and eight use uh, conspiracy, sorry, use surveys and focus groups of Georgia and Kazakhstan. So in addition to collecting these conspiracy theories for this database, I also went to Georgia and Kazakhstan, um, wrote a, a focus group script and uh, worked with a local firm to conduct the focus groups that I, that I uh, observed. And also uh, interviewed a thousand respondents in Georgia and Kazakhstan to see the other side. So um, if 
political leaders are the supply side of conspiracy theories, then ordinary people are the demand side. So um, what are ordinary people thinking when they hear political leaders use conspiracy claims? What do they believe? What do they doubt? And focus groups also give me an opportunity for people to um, speak through what they're thinking and, um, and sort of to press them and probe them on, on um, what, how they think through uh, conspiracy claims. And uh, one, one finding from this is that um, people in George and Kazakhstan are, are very likely to believe a wide variety of conspiracy claims, but that doesn't necessarily um, uh, make them support the leaders who promote those, those claims. And then in the last chapter, I look beyond the post-Soviet region uh, to think more broadly about what conspiracy theories do uh, with politics. Okay, so very briefly to wrap up, um, one lesson, one claim that, that I make is that uh, conspiracy theories in some ways emerge naturally out of politics. Politics is often very competitive. Politics is about um, creating coalitions. And so there's a natural tendency for political leaders or political entrepreneurs as political scientists sometimes call them to use rhetoric of us versus them to try to uh, widen the gap between political groups in order to, to build a, a winning coalition. And whenever you have us versus them dynamics, it's not a large leap to go from there to conspiracy claims, right? To, to uh, use the kind of rhetoric that pushes your own constituency to start thinking about the other group in the most nefarious terms. And um, if people are paying attention to politics anywhere, including in the US today, um, it's easy to see how, how this works. Um, looking at 20, uh, 12 countries over 20 years shows that there is real variation over time and space. Not all countries are the same. Um, it's, it's not sufficient to use a broad brush and say, oh, they're all conspiratorial, conspiracy theory always works. There's actually a lot of variation um, and, and fluctuations over time. Um, Russia is as prolific as, as one might expect, at least in the data based, um, based on the sources that I used, but hybrid regimes, in particular, uh, Ukraine, Georgia, and Kyrgyzstan are also uh, pretty prolific, whereas other countries that are often perceived as being conspiratorial, places like Belarus or even Kazakhstan, actually didn't produce that many conspiracy claims comparatively uh, in the period that I was looking at. Another uh, pattern that I found was that conspiracy theories migrate from the fringes into the mainstream and become normalized over time. This happened in Russia over 20 years. And uh, we've seen this happen in other countries too, countries that I need not name right now. When looking at the way that ordinary people uh, orient themselves toward conspiracy claims, it's often the case that the message from the top does get through, especially if politicians are beating the same drum. People do eventually come to, to believe uh, claims that fit with their own experiences, especially if they live in corrupt and, and somewhat dysfunctional societies, but it doesn't always benefit the population, the politicians who promote those conspiracy claims. So it's an open question whether conspiracy theories actually work uh, to achieve the goals that politicians are trying to advance. And finally, uh, I hope that my book tells a story that's not confined to the post-Soviet region but in a sense, um, it's a case study of how societies can uh, 
become uh, pervaded by conspiracy theories uh, over certain over time under certain conditions through which uh, ideas that percolate on the fringes eventually break through and politicians discover or at least believe that they're useful. Um, and so I don't want to push the analogy too far because uh, there are a lot of differences between Russia and countries outside the region, but there may be certain lessons that we can take away uh, to make sense of what's happening in other countries, including in the US. Okay, so I'll stop here. Terrific, well, uh, thanks Scott. And, and I know it's it's pretty unfair to ask you to sum up uh, eight years of research, uh, 1500 uh, conspiracy events in a database, surveys, um, focus groups. Um, so I'm just gonna ask uh, a couple of, of questions to draw out a, a few more points from the book. Um, I'll turn it over to Paul. Then I'll turn it over to audience questions. So, you know, conspiracism is is one rhetorical tool that politicians have at their disposal. It's it's not the the main one. It's not kind of taken dominance over all the others yet. Um, and not every major event becomes an object of conspiracy theories. So, in this like fifteen hundred event database, did could you draw any conclusions, any patterns about what events instigate conspiracy theories, conspiracy claims, and are speakers more likely to be acting preemptively or reactively? Yeah, thanks. So one, um, one reason why I, uh, I chose these uh, critical events, as I called them, um, was that there may be an assumption that they could be associated with conspiracy theories. But I divide them into um, street events, uh, so um, so the destabilizing events, right, that often, that often provide open visible threats to the political system. And then other kind of events uh, in Russia, for example, that were um, uh, especially fraught, like uh, NATO summits or, or elections in the US and other countries. Uh, by and large, massive street events, because they created open visible challenges to the political leadership tended to be associated with conspiracy theories. Uh, and those conspiracy theories didn't always happen before the event, because sometimes uh, those street events happen after some political intrigue has already taken place and politicians are already jockeying. And so uh, sometimes politicians can preempt what they think is coming by using conspiracy theories in order to improve their position. So um, tumultuous visible events always cause uh, especially authoritarian leaders, but also Democrats, um, a lot of grief and conspiracy theories are one way to deal with that. So those events tend to be associated with those kinds of claims. And the other events are elections, especially close elections in regimes where, um, where competition is real and incumbents might lose. Before elections, during elections and after elections are always moments of heightened anxiety. And so uh, also um, higher frequency of conspiracy claims. So, um... You talk about, you know, the, the kind of things that lead to conspiracy th claims, um, regime type, right, more competitive regimes, um, destabilizing events and, and geopolitical influences. And from, you know, 1995 to 2014, it's probably fair to say there was a lot going on in the post-Soviet space. Many regimes were becoming more competitive. There were multiple destabilizing events. Geopolitics was, you know, in, in post-Cold War transition, um, you know, there was lots going on there. Did you find over that 20 years that post-Soviet space actually became more conspiratorial during the course of your studies? 
short answer is yes. On the whole, um, there is a small increase over time, but it didn't happen in a linear way. Um, there are there are peaks and valleys, and uh, certain years and especially certain events were associated with with upticks in conspiracy claims, and a lot of those came around the colored revolutions in uh, Georgia and Ukraine and, and Kyrgyzstan. So uh, 2005 was a big year, 2008 when uh, Russia invaded Georgia was a big year, and then 2014 uh, with the Euromaidan. Um, that was the culminating event of my study. That was actually the reason I stopped the collection um, in 2014. And uh, the dynamics that happen in places where there are revolutions then also feed the rhetoric in other places as leaders are watching what's going on, uh, sometimes feeling endangered by the chance that protests could spread uh, across national borders and then often using conspiracy theories preemptively um, to, to manage their own domestic opposition. So uh, overall, um, more, more conspiracy theories in the second decade than in the first decade, but uh, spikes especially occurring in, in particular years. I want to ask about a couple specific uh, cases uh, from the book, two of um, two events that really stood out in the conspiracy theory data database. And the first is it happened relatively early in Putin's but now 22 year rule. And that was the, the Beslan uh, attack in 2004. Can you talk, and maybe in case everyone is not, um, doesn't recall what happened in 2004 at Beslan, if you can just a quick reminder, what happened at Beslan, Beslan what it signaled about the regime and how and why the Kremlin uh, used, used conspiracism. Why did this result in a conspiracy based result from Putin? Yeah. So. Beslan um, refers to uh, a terrorist attack that occurred at a school on uh, September 1st, the first day of school 2004, in the North Ossetia, in the North Caucasus. Um, it was a massive uh, attack. Um, a large number of, of militants took this uh, school hostage. Uh, the um, Russian riot police raided, raided the school in, in order to um, to kill the terrorists, but they also ended up killing a lot of school children and their parents. Um, this was a major event, not only because it was the first day of school and everybody was, was watching, but it also came on the heels of a series of terrorist attacks that had occurred in Russia that were perpetrated by uh, militants from the North Caucasus. So um, it was the fact that this came after a series of other events. And another big one was, of course, the hostage taking in 2002 in a, in a theater in Moscow. Um, so it came after several events had occurred that had put a lot of Russians on edge, had um, led to some doubts about Putin's narrative of rebuilding the Russian state and restoring order after uh, the Yeltsin years. Um, and it was just so vivid and devastating and tragic that all these people had died. Uh, so Putin positioned himself in order uh, to respond appropriately, kind of like uh, you know the US after 9-11, um, to make a statement about who was really in charge and, what, and, and how he was actually in control. So in addition to making a bunch of concrete moves uh, that helped him shore up his power, he also uh, heightened the, the use of, of conspiracy claims. And in particular, uh, about Beslan, implied that outside powers uh, from the West were working in cahoots with militants from the North Caucasus to carry out this attack. He was a little bit cagey and ambiguous about it, um, 
but it was clear that he was connecting things happening inside the country with these larger geopolitical challenges Russia was facing, linking the two together. And that uh, kind of set the new stage and, and led to a, a new, new era of official conspiracism in which the Kremlin now proactively put out uh, conspiracy theories, even if it wasn't responding to specific events. So the last question I'll ask is on on uh, Euromaidan, where you stopped uh, collecting the the data. So it, you know, Fessalon is really about the start of Kremlin conspiracy theories linking Russia's challenges to the West, um, and we see enor an enormous proliferation of conspiracy theories around Euromaidan. And Putin is in a really different place in 2014 than he was in 2004. You know, 2004 was particularly fraught, 2014 not as much, or at least in, in, in different ways for him. So why were the protests in Ukraine in 2014, why was conspiracism still a tool that Putin was sticking with given kind of the, the significantly different place he occupied in, in Russia then? Ukraine is really important to Russia. And uh, it had been a fixation of the Kremlin, uh, of, of the Putin regime in particular, from the beginning of his reign. And uh, the first Ukrainian revolution, the, the Orange Revolution, um, was a huge shock to the Kremlin um, and really threatened what, what, what the Kremlin perceived as, as its geopolitical position and led to um, a lot of geopolitical angst that was reflected in the kinds of discourse that, that the Kremlin started using about the expansion of NATO, um, reflecting Russia's weak position in the world, and a more aggressive uh, rhetoric coming, coming from the Kremlin. So by 2014, it was, I think, a foregone conclusion that um, this would be given a conspiratorial interpretation from Russia. Um, the protests emanated from within. There were a lot of Ukrainians that were unhappy with the status quo there. And so uh, for all intents and purposes, it was, it was an internal matter, but it redounded very negatively from Russia's point of view. And so um, having laid, sown the seeds for many years about how, um, how Russia would respond to any other um, perceived encroachments of its geopolitical influence, it was already, the stage was already set for uh, a dominant conspiratorial interpretation of, of the Euromaidan events, which has persisted beyond 2014 um, and the period that I study. And uh, if you're following the news now and in the last couple of weeks, um, there's a straight line from Euromaidan to the kind of rhetoric that Russia is using now. So I have tons more questions, but I also have uh, the ability to ask you them separately. Um, so I will turn it over to Paul now and ask Paul to spend about 10 minutes or so uh, kind of locating uh, Scott's book within uh, academia and what's going on now. And then um, I will turn to the growing list of questions in the queue. Paul. Uh, well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, first of all, I just want to congratulate Scott. Um, this is also, uh, this is a, a, a really important book. And you can see I've got, you know, page notes and I've got uh, paper clips and everything in, in the book uh, doing what I say I never do uh, is destroy a book simply because it's so rich with the information um, that is there. Um, uh, and I think, you know, what, what he's doing uh, in this book, um, and I think he was actually really kind of 
impression. I think he and I first discussed the book uh, maybe about five or six years ago at a conference. He told me what he was doing and I said, hmm, that's interesting. Nobody's really kind of done that before. It's a good thing because, you know, um, I, at that time, I, I think I was still in the, in the U.S. government, uh, working in the U.S. government, and I've been on the receiving end of Russian officials um, telling us that, you know, we orchestrated, um, you know, the, the Euromaidan coup or we orchestrated, um, you know, the, the Rose Revolution or whatever um, individual bit of instability um, uh, uh, we, we, we have been alleged to do. And as a former U.S. government official who never was able to get my, um, you know, taxi vouchers paid on time, I was always kind of perplexed about how they thought we could actually you know, had that tremendous power um, over people. Um, uh, so um, I thought it was a really good topic at the time. Um, and I think it's only become more uh, salient, uh, particularly um, because of, uh, you know, he finished his research, most of his research, uh, or did a lot of his, his case studies in, in 2016, just as, as the cusp of, of what we sort of saw the conspiracies kind of come home to roost uh, in, in the United States. Um, and there is, even in some of those conspiracies that we talk about in the United States, there certainly uh, has been lines uh, to Russia, to Ukraine, uh, to other places. So I think it's a really uh, important book because it, 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 it gives a, uh, a very good overview of how conspiracy works how conspiracies work outside of, of a Western democratic, you know, we, we talk a lot about conspiracies here, but there's not a whole lot of people who talk about it in societies that are, that are different um, from ours. Um, uh, and uh, I think just sort of given the connections um, and given the flurry of conspiracies, and I think there's conspiracies about Russia on both sides, there's conspiracies about what, what we do in Russia uh, uh, or what we are perceived of doing in Russia. There's also conspiracies, I think, um, uh, in the United States um, about what Russia, um, uh, you know, the, the influence it might have over, over our electoral politics. Um, and so I think it does kind of run both ways. Um, so I think it is really timely for this book to come out uh, because he also, um, uh, you know, a lot of this book and one of the things that I think is really important about it um, is I, I think I for long have been somebody who, who thinks about conspiracies and thinks about top down and more authoritarian. Um, but in his book, he really does show that countries that have that are that are slightly more democratic, more competitive politics, where you actually have to stand in front of voters um, uh, and make your case uh, and where there is at times brutal and polarized politics. Um, that is really where, where conspiracies really can, can take off. Um, and I think as we sort of see conspiracies grow in other parts of the democratic world, I think the fact that he's discovering that, that you know, these, these places where, that, are, that are partially democratic, um, that, are, that are moving hopefully towards, towards democracy, but there are some of the places where, where um, politicians use conspiracies both against each other in their internal battles uh, in, in politics, but also against um, others, uh, others outside uh, uh, of the country as well. And so I think that is a, a really key. Um, uh, another country where I see a lot of conspiracies going on and it wasn't really a, a subject of a book, but it's a place that I do a lot of work on too is Armenia. We've seen so many conspiracies coming out of Armenia um, uh, in the last few years um, as well. And again, that is one state that is not quite, it, it's sort of competitive, um, far more competitive than the authoritarian um, uh, countries, uh, the fully authoritarian countries uh, around it. Um, 
And I do think, you know, this is a great comparison because here you have countries that are that are similar in many ways, um, but you have, um, you know, some of these countries, uh, you have multiple ethnic groups, um, Kazakhstan, uh, so you can look at it across um, uh, nationalities. Some of these countries have different uh, religious um, backgrounds, so it's not just, you know, this is how the Judeo-Christian world looks at it. Um, uh, and, and this is a region where you have different geopolitical uh, orientations. So I think, you know, he takes a region uh, uh, that also um, uh, is uh, you can do a case study, a bigger case study to sort of see how these these play out, and I think that is why he's he was so successful in in highlighting um, you know the sort of the competitive use um, of of, um, uh, of conspiracy theories um, in and the political use of conspiracy theories uh, in in politics, um, both domestic politics, and I think he also has a lot about about um, international politics as well. Um, and finally, I think you know I think some of the questions that have come in, you know, this is a very timely study too because you know. Anybody who, who looks at Russia and looks at the former Soviet space, there are conspiracies galore and they go back to history, you know, false Dimitris, two different czars at the same time, how Catherine the Great killed her husband, uh, Rasputin, the Soviet Terra, which is actually when we're starting to get sort of conspiracies similar today, there were people inside the country who were backed by fifth columnists and Westerners. Um, and that led to tremendous violence um, in the country. Um, and that, you know, pretty much led to the, the, the sort of the end of the Soviet era where you kept on seeing um, uh, new conspiracy theories and some of the conspiracy theories that I think we, we see today also. Um, Scott mentioned, um, I believe the, um, the supposed chemical agents or something that was in a building supposedly placed in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, this is something that goes back. Um, and, and the Russian population heard that the United States in the 1980s created uh, the CIA, created the uh, HIV AIDS virus um, and spread it out into the world for geopolitical benefit. Um, uh, and then, um, uh, so this is a theme that that sort of comes up, the sort of the, the bio, biological weapons and it came up again uh, during the COVID um, uh, pandemic uh, where, um, you know, uh, Russia, um, uh, you know, saw them coming out of, um, uh, we have the United States funds labs that are for non-proliferation in several former Soviet countries, Georgia and, and Kazakhstan in particular. Both of those were targeted um, with both the Russians and the Chinese claiming that is where COVID came from, from those labs. It was leaked from those labs. Um, but there's also the conspiracy theories about Bill Gates um, and he uh, profiting from, from COVID um, uh, and the vaccines. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things that, that, that this is also uh, uh, tended is, is um, I think the Russian people, um, uh, even more so than the, the American people, have been very dismissive of, of COVID, the, the risks of COVID, and also the need to get a vaccine, simply because they've been disparaging you know, vaccines and Bill Gates. Um, and you actually see that now in deadly, deadly horrific numbers um, uh, in Russia. So this, this, you know, this, this idea that he also puts forward of, of countries that, that perhaps rely too much on conspiracies or push conspiracies to too much, they can actually look weak or people don't trust them. Uh, and if you actually look at the polling uh, in Russia of why people um, don't believe in COVID or why they don't want to take a vaccine, the majority is, is because the Russian government tells them they should take a vaccine and nobody trusts the Russian government anymore. Um, and so um, you know, this is the type of thing, it, it gradually, this might not have anything to do with, with you know, some of the other, um, uh, you know, uh, directly with a conspiracy. I think some of the stuff on vaccines probably does, um, but it sort of shows that that you know, the more conspiracies that are out there, um, and when you tie something to conspiracy um, in the public rhetoric, sometimes the population um, turns on you, and I think we're seeing that um, uh, in uh, in the Russian um, uh, case. Um, 
And then just a few other things um, uh, that I found uh, really quite um, uh, interesting um, uh, about the book as well. Um, so, you know, not only is he sort of, you know, looking not just at the recipients of, of conspiracy theories, but how it's used as a political tool um, uh, and both the pitfalls uh, of how that, that's, that's not something that, that has been done uh, in, in a lot of the literature. Uh, he's taking it uh, to um, uh, a region that where, where conspiracy theories are ample, but it's a very diverse region um, and seeing how they, they play out both in the political and, and sort of uh, ethnic functions and ethnic diversity there. Um, and then, um, you know, he really delved down into, into specific countries. Um, I think we can talk about, you know, Beslan, we can talk about Euromaidan, you know, a little bit later. I think he already mentioned that. Um, but some of his conspiracies um, that, he, that he discusses um, in the Georgia case are, are really quite interesting. Now, Georgia is a country that um, has generally been oriented towards the United States uh, over the last, you know, 20 years, particularly since the Rose Revolution that really caused a lot of concern inside Russia about bottom-up change um, and the belief that they were backed by the United States. You know, the United States certainly embraced, and this is you know, perhaps part of our, our problem is we usually embrace uh, these, these, these types of protests. Um, uh, uh, that gives uh, certain ammunition um, to you know, conspiracy theorists. Um, uh, so, um, but, but you actually, in, in his data, he sort of traces um, both uh, how conspiracies um, have, have turned against Russia uh, there, um, but also occasionally how they turn against the West. Uh, and this is a country that is, uh, that is clearly, um, uh, you know, looks to the United States, looks to NATO, looks to the European Union, uh, sees that as its future, um, but doesn't see every aspect of, of Western values um, uh, at it. And there's a, quite a conservative uh, movement inside um, uh, Georgia that is at the same time as the country pushes towards, uh, you know, towards greater integration with the West. There's a lot of pushback over uh, human rights issues, LGBT rights issues, uh, religious issues, um, and you can sort of the number of conspiracies that, that go in. So he really shows how conspiracies are used both within politics um, and then uh, conspiracies against you know, the West um, uh, are also meeting with conspiracies uh, against Russia in, in one specific place. So I think this is a really good, uh, a really good uh, book. Um, it is something that I think uh, both the academic community uh, and the policymaking community um, needs to, needs to uh, read. Um, and I think it's also important for the general public, particularly those who are concerned about democratic decline of, of how in places where there is, you know, conspiracies can take root and they can be used in places where there are competitive politics, where there is media um, and, uh, and the like. Um, so I think that is also um, uh, highly important. Um, and just to sort of uh, also, you know, my final thought, you know, I come from Washington, D.C., um, where my life is, is um, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy that goes around there. It's a lot of leaking and, and rumors. So I think, you know, I live with this um, every day. Um, but when it comes to sort of dealing with these conspiracies, the U.S. government is really kind of struggling um, of, of how to deal with this belief in the former Soviet Union that we're trying to overthrow regimes of this belief in the former Soviet Union that we, um, you know, spread COVID uh, uh, around. Um, and, uh, 
um, uh, you know, the United States has set up, you know, entire, you know, departments in the State Department and in USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, to try to debunk conspiracy theories. It's called the Global Engagement Center, um, and NATO has similar um, types of, of, of functions of, of how do you deal with, with these conspiracy theories that are targeting um, uh, 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 others, um, and it's a big policy challenge. Um, and then I think if we, we move beyond sort of the international sphere, which is what what I do, and that's what, what Scott does. But I think it's, a, it's also a big challenge of how do we deal with conspiracy theories um, you know, in, uh, in the United States um, as well as, as a society. Um, because you know, certainly social media you know, certainly amplifies it, but we've had conspiracies for a long time. Um, and it's just, you know, they, they, they come and go and we're at a, at a height of conspiracy, but we're also at a height of, of conspiracy in a time where our, where, you know, our political system is proving quite fragile. Um, so um, those are sort of my, my um, biggest uh, comments. Um, and, and uh, I just want to sort of endorse this book. It's really, um, uh, it is really a, a fascinating read. It's a really in-depth read um, and the comparative aspects of it, of, of moving from one um, uh, country to another country to, to the different types of, of, of conspiracies, um, uh, you'll learn a, learn a lot um, and it really adds a lot to our understanding. Um, I do have a couple of questions for Scott um, and I'd like to sort of um, uh, uh, pose them out. Um, uh, you know, and one is, um, I think you've, you've, you, you highlight that, that conspiracies can be a political tool. Um, I think they are certainly a domestic political tool and certainly we use it in, in foreign policy. But why do you think these conspiracy theories um, can be so effective? Um, uh, and particularly now, uh, they seem to be, you know, in, in places um, uh, all around the world, uh, they, seem to be, uh, they seem to be there. Um, uh, and second, um, you talk a lot in the book about um, the, 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 the internal um, competitiveness and the internal use for domestic politics of, cons of conspiracies. But a lot of the conspiracies you talk about are concerning Russian or Kazakhstani or Belarusian or you know, uh, other countries' uh, views of the West. So there's also an aspect of conspiracy in sort of foreign policy or at least foreign messaging. So I was wondering if you could uh, uh, talk a little bit about that. And maybe I'll just, um, I know we've got a lot of questions, so I'll just leave it at those two and, and maybe we can just jump in with the questions. So Scott, do you wanna um, address Paul's questions really quickly? And then I will start um, uh, trying to group together some of these really excellent questions. Yeah, yeah, those are great. Uh, thank you so much. Those are um, a great comments, and it's clear uh, that you you read this attentively, and uh, it's also not surprising that you've you've faced some of this uh, in your own uh, professional background. Uh, there's a couple of uh, points you made. Um, yeah, so the COVID pandemic has all of the ingredients um, to for the conditions for conspiracy theories. Uh, of all kinds, uh, large scale societal crises that affect large numbers of people um, that cause sickness and death. Um, and because you can't see viruses, they're very mysterious and it's easy to use your imagination to come up with ex uh, explanations about where they come from and uh, who might benefit from it. Uh, vaccine related conspiracy theories uh, have a long lineage in the US. And uh, it came out actually in the focus groups I did in Georgia and Kazakhstan spontaneously. I didn't ask about viruses, but uh, quite a few people brought up the, the idea that um, 
pharmaceutical companies create viruses in order uh, to, to, so, to profit off of uh, the vaccines uh, and the, the antidotes uh, to diseases. Uh, I think that that might be because some of those ideas start from Russia um, and uh, there's been a, a long-standing conspiracy theory about this um, American-funded center in Georgia, which does biological research and there's a claim that it's for biological weapons or something. But there's something about viruses that really makes people insecure and uncertain. It's because I think it's intangible and insidious and gives rise for, uh, to, to um, people's fantasies and, uh, and imaginations. Um, you mentioned the policy challenge. Um, the research by and large shows how difficult it is to counter conspiracy theories. Clearly fact-checking doesn't work. But when the US tries to combat misinformation or disinformation abroad, it's at a huge disadvantage. The US is not there. Locals who spread conspiracy theories are immersed in the culture and understand what people want to hear and understand uh, what kind of uh, tropes to use. And the US has a bureaucratic approach. Um, it's very, uh, know, formal and technical in its methodology. Um, and something's always lost in the translation, even if there's a good idea, it's difficult uh, to implement it on the ground. And so um, what, while I appreciate the, the effort, um, the US is just not very good at public diplomacy in general, in places where it's where there are discourses about its, its problems and, and the bad things it might be doing. Um, and it's, 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 it's a challenge, it's a, it's a challenge at, at the least. Um, you asked why, why, why do conspiracy theories seem to be proliferating now? I mean, there's a larger structural explanation out there that has to do with rising inequality in a lot of countries, um, deepening gaps um, between uh, an elite class and a large underclass, a feeling that people's voice isn't heard, a feeling that people are left behind, a cynicism. And uh, surveys in, in many Western countries have shown over the last 30 years a decline in trust in political institutions. And I think that's the underlying cause. And it's not a coincidence that um, the rise of, of populism, of populist discourses uh, and the success of populist movements has also coincided with, with the use of conspiracy theories. Those all go together. And the common factor is uh, it's an expression of people's distrust uh, and alienation from, from politics. And this is a major problem that um, uh, that democracies have to grapple with and that autocracies have dealt with for a long time. And the solution there is um, autocracy. So there is no need to give, give voice to the people um, except, except for show, uh, but democracies are, are not in a good position to grapple with this. Uh, and this is gonna continue for, for the foreseeable future. I, let's go ahead and start bringing in some uh, some of the questions from the audience. Um, Scott, I'll direct them first to you. But um, Paul uh, and and I I should have uh, given Paul's affiliation beyond the Carnegie Endowment. He's a senior fellow in the Russian Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment uh, for International Peace, a former career foreign service officer, a State Department analyst, and uh, Russia and Central Asia director of the National Security Council. So Paul, please also feel free uh, to to jump in. Um, 
So Scott, Diana Pierce asked a question if conspiracy theories are ever based in part or whole on the truth. So can you just spend a minute or a couple minutes talking about the relationship or, or lack thereof of conspiracy theories and truth? Yeah, so this is this is tricky because the conspiracy theories that I cover in the book, at least the vast majority of them, they're not insane. They Most of them are not grand conspiracy theories with multiple parts with lots of different actors like say the QAnon conspiracy theory which has taken America by storm. Most of them are not like that. A lot of them, the most of them are grounded and concrete about specific actors and specific events but they're still conspiracy theories because there's a gap between the assertion and what the evidence can plausibly show. So the US has backed democratic movements in the post-Soviet region since the end of the Cold War. Uh, the US has funded non-governmental organizations um, and election monitoring organizations. The CIA during the Cold War did overthrow regimes that uh, the US didn't like. The CIA has been implicated in uh, paying protesters to, to create disorder on the streets. That was um, part of the overthrow of, of um, Mossadegh in Iran. So there are real bases for some of the ideas that, that people promote. That doesn't mean that these are true though. Um, and in the course of politics, the kinds of conspiracy theories that, that tend to to work best, or at least that politicians perceive as working the best, are ones that have a patina of plausibility because they're based on a semblance of reality and are not crazy. So people who are already distrustful, who have already either bought into a lot of the propaganda they've heard, or who just inherently don't trust their own government, who don't trust powerful actors, who don't trust international financiers, will simply find it natural obvious that some of these claims are true without needing to have the evidence that connects the, um, the assertion to, to reality. Um, and this is a challenge then when it comes to, to both studying and also to challenging conspiracies because a lot of them are based on a semblance of fact. Uh, it's a challenge to show people why, why it's wrong and it usually doesn't work. Now, not all conspiracy theories are based on a sense of reality. And in fact, I think I, it, it's worth mentioning here because we're living in, in these times, the Stop the Steal movement uh, came at a time when uh, the 2020 election was conducted um, nearly flawlessly, right? According to, according to all um, institutional sources that run elections, there was minimal to no fraud and it's kind of counterintuitive, right? That it would it would take that that kind of event would spawn this kind of this contrary narrative about the election, and this goes to show that you don't even need a semblance of plausibility. You just need a concerted effort, a demagogue, a media ecosystem to propagate those ideas, and a lot of people that are ready and willing to believe it. So it's not always the case that conspiracy theories that are believed by large numbers of people even need to rest on some basis of fact. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because in the book you talked about, you know, the, the conspiracy theories, they don't need evidence to, to back them up to be believed. We are now at the point where all the evidence can point against them. 
and they can still be believed. Or you get into the fantastical with uh, JFK Jr. is going to reappear in a daily plaza and then Trump's going to become president again by some, you know, theory I didn't quite get there. So it's it's the, the truth and evidence aspect is um, uh, getting stranger, um, perhaps you could say. So there's, it's, I, I'm going to make it a follow-up. Um, because, you know, when, when politicians are using these, these are tools, right? It's, it's a means to an end. And, and Scott uh, Montgomery is asking, um, have you observed um, and perhaps even identified if there's a point where conspiracy propagandists, the speakers, begin to actually believe what they're saying, right? If they say it often enough and enough, do, do they actually think actually, this is now true? Yeah, that this is an open question. It, it's it's asked a lot. I, I've gone back and forth with this in my own thinking. Political scientists tend to take a cynical approach and tend to assume that politicians are always being instrumental, always being strategic and calculating. And that's why they lie only when they think it'll benefit them. And they can calibrate what they say just enough to get the effect that they want. But that's too neat and tidy. And the reality is it's, again, there's no, there's no way to know for sure, but it's completely possible and believable that say Putin really does believe that NATO is encroaching on Russia's borders because it really does want to harm or weaken or dismantle Russia. Um, it wouldn't be out of the question, right, that um, Russian, that the Russian government believed that the US was behind Euromaidan. Again, the US has sponsored protests before. And if it looks like it advances America's geopolitical interest, why wouldn't they do it again? So again, we can't know for sure, but uh, it's definitely possible and even likely that, um, that politicians believe what they're saying. They don't all have access to the best information. Politicians often isolate themselves in a bubble and surround themselves with yes men and women and are told what they wanna hear. Um, and some of them also um, just might be a little, a little off, you know, having, you know, been in power for 30 or 40 years, it's easy to lose touch with reality. Um, and sometimes paranoia sets in when you, when you find yourself isolated from, from the broader public. Uh, this question is being asked in the US, like, did Trump believe half of his lies? I don't know, do we know? And also, does it really matter, right? And at some point, you know, if you say something often enough, even if you maybe don't think it's true at the beginning, you might start to believe it after a while. And if you're a really calculating politician, um, there's no difference between believing and not believing something as long as it works. Paul, right? jump in, yeah, please. Yeah, if I could just jump in, you know, having been a diplomat um, uh, who's engaged with several senior Russian, Russian leaders, um, I actually think a lot of them do believe that we are trying to overthrow them and overthrow these regimes. Um, uh, they see it. Um, you know, they do not uh, see agency uh, of their own people, um, uh, and uh, they uh, have a, a system that is very top down. So if, you know, um, uh, so, you know, decisions are made on top and then it, it goes down. So I, when I was working in the Obama White House, I mean, we get questions over, you know, why did Obama condone that the, the Euromaidan um, and Obama, you know, was as, as surprised as everybody else by, by uh, the Euromaidan. Um, but I, um, and I also know a U.S. ambassador who was sent to Russia, um, gave his credentials over to Putin, which is traditional 
professional and he was told not to meddle like his predecessor. Um, uh, and that was by Putin himself. Uh, uh, so, you know, I really do think that there is a, I think it's, Scott is exactly right. It's, you live in a bubble, uh, you get briefed by people who are, you know, in the security services who, who, you know, see their own propaganda, lead their own propaganda. And I'll also be honest, I mean, we, we give them a lot of ammunition. I mean, if in the Euromaidan, a former, um, you know, the late Senator John McCain went to the Euromaidan, we had an assistant secretary of state who also went to the Euromaidan. Um, and then because, um, you know, anybody um, who, any ambassador who needs to get, a, get through Congress will always be asked about how are they gonna uphold human rights? So they're on the record of, of saying they're gonna uphold human rights. Uh, and then we're very transparent in our entire budget for the United States uh, um, Agency for International Development and the State Department um, uh, of what is spent on, on you know, supporting NGOs or election monitoring around the world um, is, is published because the U.S. government is accountable to the people. Um, so they can just go in and they can see, you know, we spent $2 million on, you know, some grantee in, in Kyrgyzstan over the last 20 years, and they can sort of say we were uh, involved. So I think it's very easy for, for um, you know, I don't think we were involved in, in these things, um, but it, I think it's very easy to sort of look at um, a little bit of granted truth here, a little bit of granted truth there, and then just, you know, the lack of, of other information flows to these people. So we have a question from uh, Sarah D about the the means of transmissions, and she asked, "What role did the means of transition?" And she put, "She's got cyber, TV, word of mouth play in the success of a conspiracy theory. Are some methods more effective than others in spreading conspiracy theories?" And Scott, I'm going to kind of actually break that out into two parts because I know your research was focusing on television, newspaper speeches, not on, on not on social media. So, if within your research, if you found if there was uh, one method that was more effective. And then to give some thoughts, and, and Paul, I'd love for you to jump in here too, how you think social media has has changed the landscape uh, for conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's a great question. So in my book, I focused on the content uh, rather than um, the form or the medium of, of the conspiracy theories. Uh, my main source was newspapers because those were the only sources that were available to cover uh, the entire scope of the period I was looking at and also in multiple countries. Even though the vast majority of Russians and other post-Soviet citizens uh, obtained and still do obtain their news from television. But having a wide uh, variety of newspapers representing different points of view was important to capture the kinds of ideas that were out there based on the assumption that if something appears in newspapers, it's also going to reach people either through that medium or through television or some other means. Um, more recently, and actually, uh, you know, more so since the, uh, the period I was looking at ended, uh, more and more Russians and other post-Soviet people are getting um, their news online. And uh, this has been a challenge for authoritarian regimes who are used to controlling the narrative because when you control television, it's a one-way means of transmission. So it's easy to, to deliver your propaganda directly um, to your citizens. Uh, and over time, regimes have learned how to use social media to their benefit um, using some of the techniques developed in, in China, um, but not quite to that extent. Uh, controlling the narrative by um, hiring people to promote the, the propaganda um, that you want out there, uh, 
closing down uh, oppositional sites, um, flooding the, uh, the social media ecosystem with uh, a lot of distraction and, and garbage, um, and making it harder for an oppositional message to get through. So on one hand, it makes it easier for people who are outside the government to get their message out through certain channels, in the case of Russia, um, through uh, platforms like Telegram or, or Kontaktia. Uh, but governments have gradually um, learned some of, some of um, the, the best practices about how to, how to counter their messages and, and um, how to counter the opposition messages and make their own messages dominant. So um, it's become trickier for them over time. There are people who are studying this um, more, more intensively than I am, including at the Center for Informed Public, which is uh, the center at the University of Washington. Um, so my book ends in 2014. And so um, there's one story that's been told, but there could be a sequel that focuses on, on how social media um, has changed the game. Paul, do you have anything you wanna add? No, I mean, I think, um, you know, we're seeing this, this really kind of uh, evolve uh, in, in front of our eyes. I mean, I think when you look at the, the you know, the propaganda that the Soviets used, um, you know, the, the, the stuff on AIDS, uh, there was also another, um, we evidently exported the, uh, the Colorado stink bug to the Caucasus and destroyed entire crops. Um, all these little things that are out there, but they always showed up in newspapers and they would show up in newspapers, usually first in the former you know, Soviet Union and then appear miraculously somewhere in, in India and then somewhere in Africa and then take on a life of their own. Um, I think um, these, you know, the, the fact that we now have social media, you can, you know, beam something in from, from one place um, certainly lets these things proliferate, um, you know, much, much faster. Um, uh, but I also, um, you know, I think... Um, uh, you know, we need to sort of not just under, not just be worried about the sort of the quick proliferation, um, but, but also, I mean, I think we need to understand that. Um, uh, but I think it's also the messaging um, uh, as well um, that we also need to sort of be, be dealing with because, um, you know, I think, you know, particularly if we stand for, you know, free freedom of, of expression, you know, this is a very difficult issue when we deal with uh, this, this region of, of how to manage, uh, you know, the emergence of social media, because it, it is tied with other things that we care about deeply. So, um, I mean, Paul, you mentioned a, a, a common Bill Gates conspiracy, and Robin has uh, put a question in that she was recently working in Kyrgyzstan and Bosnia, and was surprised to learn how similar conspiracy theories about COVID slash nanobots slash Bill Gates were to conspiracies that she'd heard in the US. So um, Scott and Paul, have you noticed that conspiracies have become more similar across countries or is it entirely topic dependent? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting observation. So I, I think there are certain tropes and certain templates in imagining how power works that are common across national borders. Uh, an idea about, for example, a global cabal of super rich oligarchs together with national leaders and maybe the UN or IMF kind of all working together to pull the strings. Um, this was pretty popular in the US in the 90s um, with ideas about the UN and its black helicopters. Uh, and it, kind of fits an old Soviet template about how the capitalist world operates in tandem with all these different powerful actors working together. So certain ideas I think are just kind of natural that people 
how people imagine power operates when they themselves don't have much of it. And when the power in their own country operates opaquely, especially in non-democratic countries. Um, at the same time, there are local flavors having to do with particular tropes, depending on a country's history and maybe their geopolitical position. And that's why in, in post-Soviet countries, um, geopolitical ideas about kind of old fashioned 19th century struggles over resources, struggles over territory are still pretty prominent. Um, these ideas I think are not as common in the US where maybe there's more of a focus on big business and big business being in cahoots with, um, with the government. Uh, but in countries in a former empire like the Soviet Union or in a former imperial court like Russia, the idea of being overpowered and um, having your former influence being, being usurped by somebody else is very prominent and often then works its way into, um, into more specific events that are happening on the ground. So, so there's always, so there's sort of caught like a, a, a few very vast meta, meta, meta narratives that I think are common in lots of places. And I, I'd be interested uh, you know, to, to read about people who are studying other, other countries, especially post-colonial places like Africa or South, Middle East or Southeast Asia, see if there are these common like, um, meta, meta conspiracy theories, um, while also certain um, like local peculiarities. Paul, anything you want to add? Um, you know, I, I strongly, you know, ag agree with, with um, uh, you know, a, a few things. Um, uh, one of the things that I've, that I've noticed um, just recently, particularly in the coverage of the events of Kazakhstan, um, is, is that uh, if you look at um, uh, the statements, particularly coming out of either, either Russia, um, but also out of China, there seems to be some convergence um, in the conspiratorial nature um, where the Kazakh people uh, were not really present in what happened in Kazakhstan. It was foreign actors, whether that was the United States or whether it was these 20,000 jihadi you know, people who came in and didn't speak Kazakh or Russian and, and, and fomented the discontent. Um, so you can sort of see how that, that you know, large states can help you know, promote that um, you know, more, more globally. Um, I do, you know, see also, um, you know, um, there is, you know, everybody seems to want to blame someone else for their country's own troubles. Um, and and in, in various places, it just shifts what country that is that that is in. So, you know, I think in, I've done a little work uh, here and there on Africa, and sometimes everybody looks at France and the colonial legacies of, of France and Africa. I think if you look at the United States over the last five years, you know, we have a huge chunk of the country, probably about 50%, who thinks that Donald Trump became president because Russia chosen to become president and, and um, uh, not because of other issues that we in the United States uh, need to be need to be dealing with. Um, and and um, the, you know, uh, in the former Soviet Union, they either blame Russia, if you're if you're if you are uh, Ukraine or or Georgia, uh, or they blame the United States or Europe, uh, if you're some of the other countries um, as you know, the cause of all of all of the evils and all of the problems. So everybody wants to sort of that that easy knee jerk way um, to sort of respond to whatever troubles. Um, and I do think that is probably more of a, of a global issue, um, but how it plays out is probably different in each, in each setting. So Scott, I want to bring it back um, to your book um, and, and talk about Russia um, and exporting conspiracy theories. And I don't mean like the weaponization export of its conspiracy theories like in the US, but, you know, especially for the countries that are um, uh, more, you know, leaning towards Russia, you know, your Kazakhstan um, and whatnot. 
was Russia, were Russian conspiracy theories essentially absorbed, adopted by these countries? So you just, you saw this commonality of conspiracy theories? So it's evident that tropes would migrate around the region. It's not always clear where they would start. Uh, the kind of grand conspiracy claim that America is pulling the strings of oppositions in order to overthrow mostly pro-Russian leaders um, became very common in lots of post-Soviet countries. If Russia didn't invent them though, Russia was an engine to push them out and make them much more ubiquitous uh, than they were before. Partly because uh, smaller countries look toward Russia, whether they love them or hate them. A lot of people are watching what Putin says. We watch what, what Putin says. And also because a lot of people in post-Soviet countries watch Russian television, not only ethnic Russians, but Russian speakers of which there are many prefer Russian television because it's more entertaining and better produced. So regardless of where these ideas originate, and it, it's hard to trace it to the origin because even if you find the first instance in say 2003, there's a previous version of that that might've been used in 1995 and 1989 and back into the Soviet era and before. Um, but the, the bigger process here is that when you have a Russia in the middle, uh, it has the ability to fan the flames and make it, uh, its, its propaganda uh, much more pervasive than, it, than any single country could, could have produced on its own. So um, uh, we are running short on time. So let me just try and, and get in a, a few more questions. Um, and there's two that are kind of similar, but I'm still gonna ask them separately. Uh, and and Scott, this was not a part of your, your research, but I'm just wondering if you have any, you know, initial observations or, or thoughts on this. Um, Steve P is asking, are any social groups more vulnerable to conspiracism? At first glance, we might think that less educated people are the targets of these discourses, but maybe it's educated people, especially the urban middle class. Is there a sociology of conspiracism? Yes, um, but it varies from country to country. There's an assumption, which I think is not based on a lot of good evidence though, that, ed that uneducated people are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. I think that tends to be the case in the West, um, but it's certainly not the case in post-Soviet countries and probably lots of other countries outside the, the democratic West. Uh, there, um, in, in the surveys that I did actually, in, in certain cases, more educated people were more likely to believe conspiracy theories than uneducated people. And I think one explanation for that is they're more likely to be well-informed, to read newspapers, to watch TV, um, to be aware of politics, but the kinds of messages that they're getting tend to be messages about how dysfunctional their political system is, how corrupt and abusive their leaders are. And the message that they're getting about politics is that the powerful habitually abuse the citizenry and therefore conspiracy theories simply seem more plausible to them. Um, other social groups that, that are relevant um, in the cases that I studied are ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan. And I found that overall ethnic Russians uh, were more likely to believe uh, conspiracy theories than ethnic Kazakhs. But uh, I did a statistical analysis and I found that if you control for questions about people's um, 
trust of the government and feelings of alienation and feelings of agency, then that difference goes away. So the, the reason ethnic Russians tend to be more conspiratorial um, has nothing to do with their ethnicity or anything of the fact that they're Russian, but the fact that they're more likely to feel alienated from the country, probably because they're a minority in a country where they used to be part of the majority when it was the Soviet Union, and therefore they're more likely to feel like their voice isn't heard and then therefore more likely to believe that the government and other powerful actors um, can, can be, be responsible for conspiracies. So I, I think you've conveniently answered another question in the chat there with Andy was asking, uh, you know, what is it about, Andy can tell, what is it about human nature in post-Soviet space um, or human nature in general that makes people more susceptible to conspiracy theories? And, and it's not, you know, the culture, it's not the ethnicity, it's, it's relationship to authority. There's some research uh, in the US that on a list of 10 prominent conspiracy theories, the majority of people surveyed believe at least one of those. And that implies that most people believe in at least some conspiracy theories, even in an upper income, well-educated modern society like ours. So it's important not to feel smug here um, about how we in democracies deal with power, engage in politics, um, think through complex political issues. Uh, the fact is that reality is complicated. Uh, most people are not experts in most fields. And a lot of people have um, strong feelings about certain issues and, and certain politicians. And so um, if you understand right, that the large, the larger complexity of reality and how hard it is for people to grapple with it, it's not surprising that a large amount of people would end up believing uh, some conspiracy theories. Uh, so it's a problem that I think we know, so, you know, five or 10 years ago, it would have been difficult to argue that some of the problems that are afflicting Russia are afflicting America. Now this argument doesn't need to be made anymore. And in fact, um, again, on the issue of, of, of smugness, insofar as post-Soviet citizens believe that America is secretly, uh, you know, arming Kazakh protests or the government, uh, if you compare that kind of belief to something like QAnon or Stop the Steal here, which society seems more unhinged? It doesn't make US or democracies in general look good um, when, when you look at that in comparative terms. So there is, um, I, I always love getting these questions. Um, so what do we do about it? Um, Rose uh, Gabdul is asking, uh, and, and she you know, noted it, you, you talked a bit about uh, USAID and, and public diplomacy, but she'd like to hear some thoughts and recommendations for actions that the US should take moving forward. You know, if we're not generally good at debunking misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories um, with what we're doing now, what, what can we do? Are there types of programs, um, Paul and I really love you to jump in on this as well. Are there types of programs that the US should either stop or start funding uh, to try and push back on um, conspiracism? So I do wanna hear what Paul has to say. I'll just briefly say, um, if we're talking about we as in America, I think we should start at home. And if we're a country where a large part of the population um, believes that, that Democrats are, are, are pedophiles engaging in satanic rituals, then we have serious problems that we have to address and are not that well positioned then to try to debunk conspiracy theories that Russians believe. Um, in general, I'm, I'm extremely pessimistic about uh, America's ability, not just to debunk conspiracy theories, but 
to engage in public diplomacy and to dissuade people who are either anti-American or, or, or have strong negative feelings about American foreign policy. The US has tried a variety of initiatives along these lines. Um, after uh, the Iraq invasion, especially after the Arab Spring, the US tried to engage uh, in Arab countries through various um, media programs. Uh, and it's just very hard when, number one, the US carries out a lot of unpopular foreign policies that have objectively destructive impacts. And number two, when we're here and they're there, however well-designed an American program is, uh, it's always gonna be at a disadvantage in comparison to local actors um, who, again, under understand what the population wants um, and has a lot more opportunity to shape the way that they think. So um, again, I, I would, I would um, welcome any, any uh, correction to, to my pessimism, but uh, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Paul has uh, some different ideas. Um, I don't, I don't have great ideas and that's, that's the problem. I'm hoping maybe somebody in the audience might have some good ideas. And if so, if so, they can come to Washington and, and help us all out as we, as we try to figure, figure this out. Um, you know, I, I, I agree. Um, uh, we, um, you know, there is this entire industry now trying to combat Russian disinformation, Russian conspiracies. We try to combat Russia and increasingly China, wherever Russia and China show up. Um, and I think that makes it much more about Russia and China. So if, if, if Russia is in Africa, suddenly, um, you know, we want to combat everything Russia is doing in Africa instead of having our own policies that, that are coherent and make sense for Africa or, or whatever. So I think an over-focus on, 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 you know, on Russian conspiracy theories or Chinese conspiracy theories, it, it'd be really interesting to get sort of a, 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 an analysis of Chinese, um, you know, pushed theories as well. Um, and I don't think, you know, we're very good at, at you know, we can track them, um, but tracking only goes so far. And there's all these different databases out there that, you know, track, you know, ups and downs of Russian disinformation on Twitter. And it, it I don't know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, uh, I'm not a Twitter um, a social media person. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, these are, you know, we can study the problem, but I do think, you know, um, we have to clean our own house. Um, we have our own issues. We can't sort of model others until, you know, we deal with some of those own. Um, we can certainly look at other states. There are some, you know, countries uh, in Europe, some countries uh, elsewhere in Asia that, that have you know, better track records on dealing with, with uh, conspiracy theories. Um, I think you know, they, they can be anywhere, um, but at least in, in um, elevating. Um, and then I think you know, if we want to do these programs, um, you know, I think simply debunking is, is not, and us debunking them uh, is not gonna work. Um, but you know, in, in a lot of these countries in the former Soviet space, you know, media is highly constrained. Um, civil society um, is also highly constrained, but there's really good journalists. There's really good other people out there um, who you know, can help uh, and you know, we can stand behind them in, in various different ways, advocate you know, for open media, advocate um, uh, you know, for a free media, help support, you know, with various training. Now, of course, this will probably get us, you know, we're, we're, we're leading to, to color revolutions again if we if we do these types of things. But I think really, um, you know, getting our house in order um, and we shouldn't be debunking everything, uh, but I think, you know, we should be, you know, helping and, and working uh, with um, with other countries uh, that, that can do this. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting is I've done a lot of research recently on, on sort of Russian 
um, you know, growing footprint in Africa. Um, and what we're really seeing is places with a more robust media, um, Africa has a much harder time pushing these conspiracies uh, because somebody is able to push back. Um, uh, and I think that just suggests um, uh, that you know, having these internal actors who can do it, the United States can't do it, um, whether that's in Africa or whether that's in Kazakhstan. Um, but, you know, and I think, um, but I think helping local actors um, uh, do that. And I think also, you know, a lot of these issues are because of socioeconomic inequalities. Um, I think those are a lot of our issues here, but there's also a lot of issues globally. And I think, you know, instead of just simply debunking it, looking at, at equity and equity of, 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 um, of you know how resources, global resources, um, uh, are are are, um, are delivered might also um, might also be helpful. And if I can just add here, um, one of the good things about being a professor is that I can write a book and uh, diagnose this problem without having to come up with solutions to the problem. As hard as the book was to write, to try to solve the problems that I identify are even harder. So. Uh, I'm happy to, to do my part in, in exposing and trying to understand this important issue and yet leave it to others uh, to figure out what to do with that. So um, we are just at time. So there's, uh, I'm going to ask one last question to you, Scott. It's, it's a, it should be fairly quick and easy. Um, but for those, we've got through a lot of questions. For those that I didn't, you can find the answers in Scott's book. Um, but um, Scott, so uh, Artyom asked, what's your favorite conspiracy, conspiracy theory and also the one that makes you go, I wish it was true? Yeah, you know, I'm, I get that question a lot and I'm never, I'm never ready for it when the time comes. Um, favorite, uh, you know, one of the foundational uh, conspiracy theories of the Putin era is the idea that the Russian government set off the bombs in apartment buildings in 1999 that led to Putin's rise. Um, I don't like that particularly, but I think that's uh, a critical, but it's, a, it's, it's one where there's actually some decently okay evidence that it might actually be true, but it's still a conspiracy theory. And yet um, that, event was one of the foundational moments that led to the Putin era and, and everything that's happened since then. Um, so the conspiracy theory there is that the former KGB, the FSB, planted the bombs, blamed it on terrorists, and successfully fooled everybody, led to the ri uh, rise of Putin's popularity and, uh, and his overwhelming victory in an election. If that was actually a conspiracy, then Wow, that's world changing, and not not every conspiracy or conspiracy theory um, has that kind of real world impact. So, with that, we are just a couple minutes over time. Um, Scott, I want to thank you for asking me to participate in this, and Paul, thank you for joining us. Um, that was just terrific. It really is. It's a fascinating, timely, interesting book, um, and thank you, uh, everyone, for your time tonight. Mm -hmm.